Good morning, Hill family. How's everybody this morning? Good. My name is Pastor Jimmy. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Man, you guys were singing today. It's always a joy to sing with you, to hear you singing. You almost sing as well as I do, so I'm grateful to hear you. It's been a... uh, See, people are laughing because they know I'm a... If you come to this church Monday through Friday, anytime I'm here and I'm sermon prepping, you will hear me singing. Good? I don't know. That's up to you to discuss. But I'm a singer. It's been a really good year for me to be a sports fan. All right? The Braves won the World Series. The Bulldogs are the national champions. They beat the Alabama Crimson Tide, Nick Saban. And in an unbelievable turn of events, the Cincinnati Bengals are in the Super Bowl. It is a year for sure. Doesn't, doesn't Braves, Bulldogs, and Bengals just sound so good? I mean, it's just great. Growing up there, I, I really was, I was a Braves fan. They were my team. And I grew up tailgating in the 90s. Uh, during the multiple World Series we went to in the 90s. We only came away with one win, but we went to many of them. And we often would go to the opening day games as well as a family. And one of those I remember was especially uh, memorable because that year we, were, uh, we got to meet the players. I can almost remember the excitement of uh, being able to, to, to come near to all of my favorite players I used to watch on TV. Like, this will, you'll, I'll figure out your age, by the way, you know any of these players. Ron Gant, David Justice, Greg Maddox, Terry Pendleton, and yes, Deion Sanders played baseball for the Atlanta Braves. Um, and this all took place at Hank Aaron Stadium on the field, with all the players stationed uh, along the outfield wall, where you could walk right up to them and take your picture with them, sort of. That's at least the way that was communicated what was going to happen. That's at least how I envisioned it, and that's what they said. But there's actually a few barriers in between us and them. The first thing was that you, you stood in a line, one big line, about 50 yards away from the players, and you didn't get to pick which player you went and saw, whichever line moved fastest you went to. So I didn't go get to see David Justice. Instead, I saw Mark Lemke and Jeff Blauser. I don't know if you guys remember any of them. I did get to see Ron Ganto which was important. But uh, a security guard would then escort you around this wall, take you up on this platform, and then between you and the player was this huge barrier, which came up about this high. Um, and then you would, they would, the photo person would stand there and the player would lean in and you would lean in over the barrier together and you'd take a picture. By the picture, it looked like you were like right next to them, you were best friends, but actually that wasn't happening at all. There was a barrier. In fact, there was multiple barriers in place to keep you separated from the players. Now, my friends didn't need to know all that at school with a picture for sure. Like, you know, I I could let them know we spent all weekend with the Braves having dinner and doing all that. But defined barriers were in place to keep us at a strategic distance from the players. After two, nearly two months, we return this morning to the book of Hebrews. The second part of what we've been thinking through, a year-long sermon series we've called The the Shadow and Substance of Redemption. Uh, A year ago, actually, this February, this month, we began our journey in Exodus, if you were here for that. So it was this this month, a year ago, we started our, our sermon series. And we started in Exodus because Exodus really does pave the way for the book of Hebrews. We've seen the benefits of that as we've been moving through it. And the language from uh, the sermon series itself came directly from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, where the author, speaking of the things recorded in Exodus, says, he said that they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. A little further down in verse 6, he goes on to, to further explain, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. It's kind of our verse that kind of set out our, our, our theme of our series. And our goal in this series has been really for all of us to be confronted with the, the shadow of redemption in Exodus so that it would provide us eyes to see Jesus, the true substance of our redemption in Exodus. Now, if you remember, we talked uh, extensively about the book of Hebrews being written to a group of 
Jewish believers experiencing persecution and hostility and much pressure for their faith. And the temptation, or at least all of this, was placed upon them with the attempt to get them to turn back from following Jesus to the old Jewish religion. And as we've noted along the way in the book, the author issues multiple serious exhortations and warnings calling the people to persevere. And his logic and his reasoning has been straightforward for doing this. Christ is better. Jesus is the culmination of all God's redemptive purposes. Jesus provides a better hope, a better covenant founded on better promises. He is the better sacrifice guaranteeing a better inheritance. And, and, and through Him and Him alone are we able to truly draw near to God. As will be the focus of our text this morning as we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 9. If you have a Bible, please open it to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1. I know I messed you up reading those other two verses. I heard you turn in there. We're in chapters nine, chapter 9 this morning beginning in verse 1. Now the Old Covenant prescribed a means of approaching God in worship. There was a way of worshiping God in the Old Testament. But like my opening day experience with the Braves, it was one that would not allow the worshiper to truly draw near to God. Through the old way of worship, barriers and distance was necessary to ensure strategic separation. But Jesus has come to remove the the barriers. And Jesus has come to, in fact, bring us, draw us near to God, into His very presence. So my main idea this morning, I'll give it to you, and then I want to read this beautiful text, is that through Jesus' superior sacrifice, He secured our eternal redemption, bringing us near to God. Through Jesus' superior sacrifice, He secured our eternal redemption, bringing us near to God. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Read down to verse 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified, uh, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause at the reading of Your Word. and God, we have a a text this morning that lays out in beautiful detail the work of Your Son on our behalf the securing of eternal redemption. And God, we're in between, on each side of me is uh, the table this morning and we will come as a church later. God, I pray in this time, help me to be clear 
about the barriers that keep us from you. But the means by which you've provided and the work that has been accomplished through your son to bring us into your very presence. That we can be, that we can actually draw near to you. God, I pray we would see today the beautiful reality of the gospel afresh. God, you would leave us, as the text calls us to later, to come with confidence and to draw near to you because of the work of your son. Be with our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, if you do remember back a few months ago, we left off in chapter 8. And if you'll turn your eyes to the last verse in chapter 8, it's worth reading there. It says, verse 13, it says, In speaking of a new covenant, He, Jesus, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, in Jesus, the new has come. That's been the author's point at multiple places in the book. And... And the old covenant with its old way of approaching God is becoming obsolete. Our text this morning is the continuation of this line of thinking or this argumentation. In fact, our text this morning serves to, as a further explanation as to why the old covenant is made obsolete in Jesus. And this begins first with the insufficiency of the old way the author is going to lay out for us in verses 1-7. through seven. These first seven verses of chapter 9 concern the worship of the Old Covenant within its earthly, temporary dwelling, the tabernacle or the tent. And the details uh, provided depict a process of worship familiar to the Jewish experience. There was a manner, there was a way, there was a process of approaching God in worship, drawing near to Him. There was a way of of approaching him in worship, but the author's point is going to be clear over and over again that actually drawing near to him was not an option. The old way was insufficient for this. Worship took place in this tent that was purposely prepared, as verse 2 says. It was prepared by Moses under the instruction of, of the Lord, which we learned from Exodus in detail, if you remember. And it was prepared, very importantly, to contain two sections, the holy place and the most holy place. Now the people could not enter either of these. Their access was limited outside the court, outside to the court where sacrifices and offerings were made upon what we saw there was a a huge bronze altar and then presented to the priest who would enter the holy place on behalf of the people. The priests served daily in this first section and it contained, as we see here, a lampstand, a table and Bread of of presence, as verse 2 spells out. This lamp was to burn perpetually before the Lord. And this table contained the bread that was consumed by Aaron and his sons and replaced weekly. This first section was known as the holy place where the priest served on behalf of the people. The author makes that explicit at the end of verse 2. This is the holy place. But turn to see your eyes on verse 3. Verse 3 begins, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Notice the repetition of second here. Behind or after the second curtain is the author's way of emphasizing the division between the holy and the most holy places. And in in this second section was found, verse 4, the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Again, in Exodus, we learn that as you, as, we, as you move into the tabernacle, we talked about starting from the outside. We actually, if you want to go back and listen to that sermon, we preached a whole sermon on just the layout of the tabernacle. That as you move into the inner recesses of the tabernacle, closer to the place of God's dwelling, everything within the most holy place becomes more significant in both detail and substance. The curtain was made of more elaborate material. And the furnishings went from being laid with gold to now pure gold, even as we see here. In the most holy place, division was stronger and the contents were more elaborate. For here was located the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets of the covenant on which the Ten Commandments were engraved. God's provision for His people through His Word was at the heart of their relationship to Him. But verse 5 is where the author is leading us. Emphasizing the separation between these two sections, 
the author forces our attention to what we see here in verse 5, known as called the mercy seat. Verse 5, above it was the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. These were two angelic figures made of pure gold whose wings overshadowed the mercy seat or the place of atonement. And they, were, they are described as cherubim of glory because it was be, between them that the glory of the divine presence was said to dwell among its people. This mercy seat depicted, was depicted as the earthly throne of God. And it was where the author wants our gaze to be fixed. He doesn't want us to get lost in the details of the arrangements and the the furnishings of the tabernacle. He makes that clear in verse 5. There's much we can't say about this. But instead, he wants us to see what it depicts. That mercy is our only hope of approaching God in worship. And that was impossible except by way of another, the high priest. Verse 6. These preparations... Having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people or the sins of ignorance, maybe your translation says. So regular access was given to the priest in the holy place where he stayed, where he served daily on behalf of the people. But this most holy place was different. It was entered only once a year. It was entered only by the high priest who dared not enter apart from the shedding of blood, both for his sin and for the sin of the people. Now, the Bible describes what we refer to, maybe you've heard it referred to as sins of commission and sins of omission. You heard that language before? All right. So in, in other words, we sin deliberately or we do what we ought not to do. Sins of commission. But we also sin by not doing what we ought to do, what we're called to do. And failure to do, to omit what God commands is no less sinful than doing what's commanded not to do. But here there, there seems to be a, I don't want to call it a third type, but another explanation of sin here being communicated he talks about sins of ignorance depends on what your translation has there are sins of unintentionality this seems to be sin committed without even realizing we're committing anything and at first glance this may seem to suggest something less troubling maybe something less important here right i mean like can't really is it really a big deal if people actually didn't know that they were committing sin when they did it. But actually, I think just the opposite is being, commi- being communicated here. This speaks to something much more severe in regards to our sin and the holiness of God. The author is saying that we are such sinful people that our sin is so pervasive and so insidious that we, that, that we not only need atonement for sins of omission and commission that we confess we need atonement for sins we don't even realize we commit each and every day this whole structure of worship that's being laid out here testifies to the fact that we are sinners to the core we sin when we don't even realize it that is a humbling thing we should consider sin is much more than actions we commit or fail to commit sin is a matter of the heart Sin is a matter of our wants. It's a matter of our desires. It's a matter of our motives. It's a matter of our thoughts. Jesus alluded to this on the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't just leave the sin of adultery in the realm of a physical sexual act. No, He connected it to lust, which resides in everyone's heart in this room. And He didn't just leave the sin of murder in the realm of, a, of the physical taking of one's life. No, He dug much deeper. Connecting it to hate, something we all struggle with. At the core of who we are, we are sinners. Language often used to describe this is that we are depraved. Meaning, not that we can't do anything good. Nor meaning that we can't get any, any worse than we already are. And both are true. No, depravity speaks to the fact that there is 
no area of our person which is not affected by sin. We're sinners to the core. And our sin is such a serious thing because of who God is. God is uncompromising in His holiness. He is perfect in His righteousness. This is what the cherubim's wings overshadowing the mercy seat represent. The holiness of God is distinct from us in every way. Which is our greatest concern as sinful humanity. That's the real concern at the core of our existence. And the danger is that we live in a horizontal world where we, can, where we tend to compare ourselves and to seek to find our identity in relationship to other people. We're fed the lie that our value and that our worth is to be found in comparison to others solely on the horizontal level. And while that's dangerous on just a personal level, life level, spiritually speaking, it's disastrous. Your main concern, my main concern, is not my righteousness, our righteousness in comparison to anyone or anything else on the horizontal level. The concern of the human condition, the concern of our soul, is our righteousness in comparison to the holy, perfect, and righteous God of the universe. This explains the prophet Isaiah's response after he was given a vision of being in the Lord's presence in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read it if you want to turn there. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the fountains of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah's response, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for, the, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah got a glimpse of the glory of God, he was instantly stripped bare of himself. His sin and his unrighteousness burst from his lips in the presence of the holiness of the God that his eyes was able to gaze upon. Look, as the old Puritan prayer goes, it makes a lot of sense. It says, Let us never forget that the heinousness of sin lies not so much in the nature of our sin committed as in the greatness of the person sinned against. What the author of Hebrews is making clear is that due to our sin, drawing near to God, through the old way, was insufficient in every way. Two sections divided by a curtain were put in place, which could not be passed except by the high priest. And even he was only allowed to enter this place of God's dwelling once a year. And we learned this in Exodus. There was a very detailed way he had to do this. From the way he washed to the way he dressed, to everything about this process. And he did so not without blood, the means of atonement, both for his sin and for the sin of his people. Why all of this? Because God is holy and we are sinners. The old covenant, the old way, was insufficient to bring us near to God. And yet, God orchestrated and instituted it for his divine purposes. Let's move to verse 8 here and see the anticipation of the new way. Verses 8 to 10. When we speak of the ineffectiveness or the insufficiency of the old way, we're in no way saying something was wrong with it. We made that point in chapter, in chapter 8. When the author speaks of the new covenant making the old obsolete, as it did back in 832, he's, not, he, he, he's doing nothing less than speaking of God's divine purposes. In other words, the way of worship was ineffective and insufficient 
Because God intended it as such. So that it would anticipate the need for the new and perfect way in Jesus. And we know this from verse 8, which states how through this repetitive, insufficient system of worship, the Holy Spirit was speaking. He was indicating that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. So the distinction between the holy and the most holy place is essential to understanding what's being communicated here. So the the architecture, the the furnishings, the the curtain, and the once-a-year entrance into the holy place, solely by this high priest, it cried out for a day when the final sacrifice would come. As long as there was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, the people were not fully in the presence of God. They could not draw near to God with confidence, which is the call of Hebrews over and over again. The old system indicated its incompleteness and its inability to bring sinful man into the presence of a holy God. It demanded something else. And the reason for this are made clear in verses 9 and 10. According to this this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulation for the body imposed until the time of reformation. These gifts, these sacrifices, they really did matter. They were essential for worship at this time. They served as the means of holding back the wrath of God upon the people's sin. But as the text says, they could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They could not change the heart. They could not deal with the real issue of our sinful heart. They were external acts of worship. They dealt only with the things like food and drink and various washings and regulations. But Israel, like each of us, needed sacrifice and offering that dealt with the real issue of our hearts. Even The, the author's point here is this. Even the highest of all sacrifices in the Old Covenant Remember, he's got a group of people that are being persecuted and they're being told to turn back to the Old Covenant. He's saying that even the highest of all sacrifices, the sacrifice made on the Day of Atonement in the most holy place, could not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. It could not bring any real change. The author's contrast could not be clearer. Though the Old Covenant worship involved constant and continuous offerings, it could not purify the depths of the human heart. It anticipated something else or someone else, as the author pivots to in verse 9. Verse 9, we pick up with this securing of eternal redemption. The first four words of verse, uh, in, in verses, I'm sorry, in verse 11, we pick up in verse 11. First four words of verse 11, but when Christ appeared, they contain wonderful, glorious, gospel-freeing truth. While verses 1 through 9, and even down into 10, uh, discuss the ineffective and insufficient worship of the Old Covenant. Verse 11, we find the fulfillment of all of it. Meant to point, through, went to point us to the appearing of Jesus who secured our eternal redemption. The word appearing highlights the fact that God's plan of salvation has been revealed in Christ. And Jesus appeared as our high priest of the good things that have come signaling the dawning of all God's promises being fulfilled in Him. And His priestly service took place in the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. This, of course, is no earthly tabernacle. Again, in the previous chapter, the author explained how the earthly tabernacle or earthly tent was patterned after the heavenly dwelling or the heavenly tent. The most holy place of the tent on earth was a picture of the realities of heaven, where in fact God's presence dwells. And where, the, and where the Levitical high priest could only go as far as the earthly, most holy place by the means of the blood of, of an animal sacrifice, Christ entered the eternal and heavenly, most holy place, the true tent, by means of His own blood. And this He did once for all, emphasizing the completeness and the eternality of Christ's sacrifice in comparison to all the repeated ones of old. While they continually had to offer up sacrifices, Christ offered up a sacrifice once for all. 
And by this single offering, the text says, He secured our eternal redemption. You say, how can this be? Well, because the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is grounded in the superiority of His person. Jesus didn't enter the earthly tent by means of an animal sacrifice. He entered the heavenly tent by the means of His own spotless, sinless blood shed upon the cross. Remember Hebrews chapter 1. This is the theme, the kind of the thesis verse. We talked about that in the opening verses where we read that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Meaning, He's the sinless, perfect, holy Son of God. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. And what did this Son do? It says, after making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So by offering Himself and all His perfection to the Father as atonement for our sin, He secured our eternal redemption. The sacrifice of Christ, brothers and sisters, was effective. It secured our eternal redemption. It didn't just make possible our eternal redemption. It secured our eternal redemption. And that's good news. We need eternal redemption because we are eternal sinners. And the author will state in verses 10 through 14, we're kind of building to this verse in a couple weeks, He says, for by a single offering, He, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We've dealt with, at multiple places, and we will deal with it again, with the difficult reality of some of these texts and the warnings of Hebrews as it relates to the perseverance of the saints that we've we've talked about. That those who Christ saves, He keeps. Which we hold to, which we stand very strong on at our church. But I want us to see here. I think it's clear in the text. Once we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We cannot be lost. Christ doesn't just offer eternal, uh, any redemption. He secures our eternal redemption. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. His office is sure. His sacrifice is effective. Jesus' eternal blood secures our eternal redemption. Where are you seeking to find security in this life? In Christ and His, the security of His eternal redemption? Or on the horizontal level? Through the acceptance, the approval, the applause of this world. First question of the Heidelberg Catechism reads, What is your only hope in life and death? Answer, That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by the Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Jesus is our security, brothers and sisters. Jesus' eternal blood has secured our eternal redemption. The author is going to further ground the effective nature of Christ's sacrifice in verses 13 to 14. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, pure, blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So to approach God in the, in, in the old, covenant, in old Covenant worship, the, this required a ceremonial cleansing. This is what the author means by the purification of the flesh. 
But the priest engaged in these ceremonies and these washings to be outwardly and externally clean to enter the Holy of Holies and make their offering on the Day of Atonement. But these sacrifices, these washings, they could not cleanse the inner person or, the, or conscience. But as the sinless Son of God, Jesus needed no ceremonial cleansing. He offered Himself not for ceremonial cleansing to purify the flesh, but as verse 14 says, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God. In other words, His sacrifice was no external reality. It wasn't dealing with external things. It was eternal as the spotless, perfect sacrifice was received by the Father. And it eternally purifies our conscience for those who trust in Him. It sets us free. The payment due our sin has been paid for Christ on the cross. The shame we deserved, Jesus took on the tree. The guilt which held us captive, He received on our behalf by shedding His blood to the sacrificing of Himself as an offering to and to be received by the Father on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, deep, glorious, and eternal forgiveness is offered to all in Jesus Christ. All the guilt, the shame, and the weight of our sin can be cleansed, can be removed, can be canceled through the blood of Jesus Christ. He and He alone secured our eternal redemption. For He and He alone is the one who can purify our conscience. Outside of Christ, there is no means of honestly having our conscience clear. There's no means of having our sins forgiven. There's no means of having our debt removed and our guilt erased on the horizontal level. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much effort we try to put into it, but in Christ, through His superior sacrifice, our conscience can be purified from all our dead works so that we can serve the living God. Now, what does that mean, serve the living God? We've got to think about it in the context of worship and the priestly duties. Serving God meant entering into the sanctuary of God's presence. So brothers and sisters, through the blood of Christ, we are now able to in fact draw near to God. And because we are able to come, we are called to come. And that is a phrase that is found over and over again in the book of Hebrews. I'll just read you a few. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. Chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Chapter 11, verse 6, Therefore He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. That's the same verse, ain't it? We're to come by way through the work of Christ. We have that opportunity this morning presented to us to come to the table this morning. This morning, we're going to spend a little different than what we usually do. We're going to spend a more extended period of time taking the Lord's Supper this morning. In light of these passages, in light of the work of Christ that we see here. And in light of the author to come, we're going to do just that. But as sinners, well, there's a way we have to come. There's a prescribed means that we come. It's through Christ, through the work of the gospel. If you're here this morning... And you are a believer. In a moment we will invite you to come to the table. We'll walk through the instruction there. But if you're not a believer this morning. I, 
I'm not inviting you to come to the table. In fact, I don't want you to come to the table. I want you to come to Christ. I want you to see your sin. I want you to be honest about the reality of your guilt, your shame, and your sin before a holy and righteous God. That yes, you do commit sin. You do omit certain things that are sinful in your life. But we sin not even knowing it. The God we are to stand before, the God we are to serve, is a holy and righteous God. And we have no hope of coming to Him apart from the work of Christ. What keeps you this morning from placing faith in Christ, from turning from your sin and receive the gift of eternal life, to receive this offer, this promise of eternal redemption this morning. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning in verses 27 to 29. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. We're all going to take a moment and reflect in light of that verse. And reflect upon where's your eternal security at this morning? And then for us as believers... We always need to examine our own hearts before the Lord. We need to confess our sins to the Lord. And be able to come and receive the forgiveness that He offers to us in Christ. Let's take a moment. We're going to reflect before the Lord. Lead us in a time of confession. Almighty and merciful Father, like lost sheep, we have all erred and strayed from your ways. Father, far too often we we follow the devices and the desires of our heart, we confess. We have broken your holy law, Lord. We have refused to do that which we ought to do. And we've done things we ought not to do. We confess that apart from your gracious work in Christ, we have no hope. God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men. We acknowledge with honestly sorrow in our hearts of our many sins and many wickedness, which we from time to time do grievously commit. Not just by action, Lord, by thought, by word, by deed, yes. Against your person, your divine person. Against your majesty. Provoking what would justly be right, your wrath and your indignation against us. But, O oh Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare us by your grace, all who confess their sin to you. Restore all who repent according to your promises declared to us in Christ. Father, we, we do earnestly lay our hearts before you. And we repent. 
Forgive us for our wrongs. Remembering now what grieves you. Have mercy on us, Father. Have mercy on us for the glory of your Son's great name. Forgive us all of our past sins. Grant most mercifully, Father, for Christ's sake, that we may please you in the newness of life. Help us to live godly, righteous, sober lives to the glory of your holy name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And take some time here. We're going to read some passages in light of our reflection, in light of our admittance and confession of sin. We have other places. We have an assurance that God pardons us. And we're going to read these together. We're going to have, I think, three scriptures on the board, we're going to, on the screens. And we're going to read these uh, together as a church. All right? First one. First John 1 John 1.19 If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Titus 3.4 But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Thirdly, we're going to read a, a longer text from chapter 10 of Hebrews. And I want you to hear the summation of the glory of the Gospel and then the, the call to draw near, to come, that we're going to do in just a second. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for He who promises is faithful. So we're going to come in just a moment and we're going to do two things. We come to confess our sin but we come to hold fast to the confession that we have in Christ, the hope that we have in Him. So where we're going to do this is you're going to come forward from the middle aisles, please, to the outside. Go back around to the outside. Take both. If, if you're, We have the sealed cups if you feel more comfortable taking those. Take one of those with you. If not, we have double stacked cups. They have the wafer and the juice together. Okay, so just grab one of those. Go back around. Go back to your seat. Okay, I will lead us in taking those. Okay, so we're going to sing a song here in a minute. Get the elements, go back to your seat, and then I'll come back up and lead us in taking them. Let me pray. Father in heaven, God, in one sense, it's a sobering thing to lay bare before you our sin. But God, what a glorious thing to know that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that we've been washed, that we've been pardoned, that we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. God, help us to revel in that truth today. Help us to be sober in our ways, but to be joyful. That we actually do get to come, to draw near through the body and the blood of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Jesus says to us, each one of us, individually, take up your cross and follow me. So, just a moment, I'm going to read a portion of Scripture and lead us in taking of the bread, but we're going to take it individually. So as a reminder of each of our personal call to discipleship, we're going to take the bread reflectively and individually while we sing this next song. Okay, so let me read um, a portion of Scripture here. and We're going to take the cup together. So you're just taking the bread individually and reflectively while we sing this next song. For I received from the Lord what I have also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, as a 
as a symbol, as a picture of our unity in the body, the bond of the gospel. We're going to collectively take of the cup together. Let me read. Verse 25. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, church, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Close out our service with a prayer. Thank you for your faithful giving. You can continue to do that online. We'll pray over our offering of this time. Reflect more today over lunch about what it means to have been brought near to God through Christ. The riches and the benefits of that. And church, let me just say to you as your pastor, I do this to my kids, I'm going to do it to you. It's a little awkward. I love you. You're supposed to say I love you back. I love you, church. I'm grateful for you. Let me pray. Sing the benediction. We'll be close. Father, what great joy. What deep privilege we have as Christians. God, that we sinners, defiled in every way, depraved to our core, can stand and sing of the riches of Christ because we know you. God, we've been redeemed. We've been set free. We've been washed and cleansed by the blood of your Son. How that should rupture our lives and change everything about who we are. God, remind us today. I know we have difficult moments. I I talked to a sister at the door who barely got here who's struggling in every way. God, remind us on our worst day that you secured our eternal redemption. We stand in that security today. Thank you for your body and your blood represented in the bread and the cup. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the unity of the bond of peace. It's found in Christ. Help us to be good stewards of that and continue to build one another up in your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Hey.